Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Lauren. And this is the Out of Time Podcast. Episode 3, welcome back and thank you for listening. Today we'll be covering a case that has remained a mystery for over 75 years, although there have been developments as recently as 2018, but you'll have to keep listening to find out about that. I'm not sure how well known this case is amongst people who aren't interested in true crime or mysteries, but it really is intriguing and there are so many theories. You can really get lost down a rabbit hole with this one. But before we get started today, we want to ask everybody listening a favour. If you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, please, please rate, review and subscribe, especially on iTunes. The the ratings and reviews on iTunes will really, really help to push the podcast out to more people. And we really appreciate anyone who is there and willing to do that for us. Be prepared, guys. This is probably going to be a long episode. I think definitely. There's no probably about that one. So let's get started discussing the question we all want the answer to. Who put Bella in the witch elm? What we're about to talk about takes place in Hagley Wood, just outside Stourbridge in Worcestershire in the West Midlands, UK. The closest city is Birmingham, around 17 miles away. At this time, World War II was raging, and Birmingham, being an important city for industry and manufacturing, along with the surrounding areas, had been subjected to heavy bombings from the Luftwaffe during 1940 all the way up to 1943. On the 18th of April 1943, four boys were getting up to mischief in Hagley Wood. Their names were Robert Hart, Tom Willits, Fred Payne and Bob Farmer. This stretch of woodland is situated on the grounds of Hagley Hall Estate. Not only were the boys trespassing, but they were poaching birds' nests and possibly rabbits too. Around midday, Robert decided to climb a tree while looking for nests. Until this point, the boys' biggest worry that day probably would have been getting caught by the estate's gamekeeper, but something far worse was about to happen. As Robert Hart reached down into the hollow trunk of the witch elm, he felt something, but couldn't quite reach it, so he used a stick to pull it free. What emerged was not a nest as he expected, but a skull. Initially, the boys thought it had belonged to an animal, that is, until they saw the clumps of human hair and crooked teeth protruding from its face. Startled and scared, the boys replaced the skull in its hiding place, made a pact never to tell anyone what they had discovered, and fled the woods. However, despite their agreement, made for fear of what their parents would think about their activities that day, the secret was too much for Tom Wits, and not long after he got home he broke down and spilled the beans to his parents, who promptly informed the police of what had been found. Even with their limited resources, given the current war effort, local police soon cordoned off the area. By this time it was dark, so they decided to have special constables guard the tree overnight. The next morning, upon searching inside the cavity of the tree, police found not only the skull, but an almost complete skeleton. Almost complete? Yes, so the right hand was missing, and the bones of it were found scattered nearby. That's a bit odd, isn't it? It is, and it's something that we're going to discuss quite a lot over the course of the episode. They had to use an axe to open up the trunk, and eventually the tree was cut down to allow the remains to be excavated from their wooden tomb. The body had been placed into the tree feet first, so it was effectively standing up inside the trunk. Oh my god. It's a strange thought, isn't it? Professor James Webster from the West Midlands Forensic Science Laboratory had been called in to perform an autopsy, and these were his findings. 
The skeleton belonged to a woman aged around 35 to 40 years old, with brown hair that had not been coloured or permed. If you think back in the 1940s, permed hair was a big thing. Most women did have a perm. Yeah. Um, probably not as much during the war, but they could tell from what was left on the skull that that hadn't been done mm-hmm. in this case. She had been approximately five feet tall. The bones showed no sign of violent trauma, so there were no breaks and there was also no indication of disease. Her pelvic bones showed evidence that she had given birth at some point in her life. She had a distinctive dental pattern with irregular front teeth. And it could be seen that she'd had dental work within a year of her death, including an extraction from the lower right jaw. Professor Webster estimated she'd been dead between 18 months and two years, and he gave an approximate time of death as October 1941. Although the clothing had started to disintegrate, with the help of Dr Lund, there was enough there to determine that she had been wearing a mustard-coloured cloth skirt with a peach taffeta underskirt, a dark blue and yellow striped knitted cardigan with a light blue belt, size five and a half blue crepe-soled shoes, and a cheap gold wedding ring. So, how did she die? Well... Professor Webster also found a piece of taffeta lodged inside the skull, which led him to conclude that she had died of suffocation. However, this assertion can be challenged because, according to some sources, the boys had stated that they used a piece of cloth from the inside of the tree to cover a stick and then they used the stick to push the skull back into the tree cavity. So, potentially, we don't even know the true cause of death. But do you want to know what's worse? Go on then. He could also tell that Because of the size of the hole that she had been found in, the body had to have been placed inside the cavity of the tree before rigor mortis had set in. That's Obviously, that's the stiffening of the body after death. Yeah. Meaning she had to have still been warm or possibly even alive. God, poor woman. The investigation was headed up by a detective superintendent, Sidney Knight, assisted by Deputy Inspector Thomas Williams. Now, given that they were able to gather a fair amount of information about what she had looked like, especially with that distinctive dental pattern, and the fact that she was wearing a wedding ring, the police thought they'd soon be able to identify her. They started by reviewing over 3,000 missing persons cases, but came up with nothing. So they began a nationwide search of dental records to find out which dental practice had carried out the work. They even had the details published in dental journals, but again, they found nothing. She definitely had the dental work done, but there was no record of her in anyone's books. That's bizarre. Yeah, it really is, because even back then, obviously, you had to have your dental records to show all the previous work that had been done, and they should have easily been able to trace that. They found out that the shoes she'd been wearing were one of 6,000 pairs manufactured in Northampton, which had been sold at various markets and retail outlets, so they had their way of tracing the buyer. They also couldn't trace her clothing because all of the labels had been cut out. Now, I found this part of the case really interesting because there is the more obvious explanation that they could have been secondhand and someone had written their name on the labels. They were cut out when sold on. But this also happened in some Jane and John Doe cases, one of which is the Somerton Man, which I think is on our list of cases to cover. And in some of these cases, it's believed it was done in a deliberate attempt to hinder the identification of a victim. Well, that's really interesting. It is. But I do wonder if maybe in life she had very sensitive skin. Because I know as a child, my mum had to cut all my labels out of my clothes. 
and some people are like that even later in life the labels are very itchy if you've got sensitive skin so yeah that's could another, even, another possibility isn't it yeah it could be as simple as that but bear all of that in mind for later when we talk about some theories unsurprisingly the inquest ruled her cause of death as murder by person or persons unknown Despite best efforts, the case of the tree murder riddle, as it was known in the press, very soon went cold and the public lost interest. None of the evidence they had found returned any information as to this woman's identity. They had no witnesses and no suspects. But a few months later, something would happen that would bring the case back to the forefront of the public's consciousness. In 1944, on the side of an abandoned building on Upper Dean Street in Birmingham, a message appeared. Written in chalk were the words, Who put Bella down the witch elm? Suddenly, the mysterious woman had a name, and it didn't take long for the people to realise it wasn't the first time the graffiti had been seen. Around Christmas 1943, just eight months after the boys had discovered the skeleton, a similar message had been chalked onto the side of a house in nearby Old Hill, reading, Who put Lou Bella down the witch elm? The first message wasn't linked to the case until the second piece of the graffiti had been found. I presume because Birmingham was close to Tarkleywood, so maybe the residents were more aware of what was happening? But the police got straight back to work, reviewing all the previous missing persons cases, looking for the name Bella or possible variations of it. So none of them panned out. On the 30th of March 1944, the evening dispatch reported... The writing was too high on the wall to have been done by boys and the police were inclined to the view that it was the work of someone coming into the city early in the morning with farm produce. I actually find the graffiti really sinister. That yeah. aspect of the case. That it's just sort of a name. Yeah. I suppose it had been widely reported so they knew that a body had been found in the witch elm and it's easy to assign just a random name. But yeah. I don't know, there's something about that that I find really, really sinister. Police appealed for the writer to come forward, but just like that of the victim and her killer, their identity remains unknown. Was this someone involved in the crime taunting the police? Or someone who had come to know something but didn't feel like they could come forward? Was the name meant to be a clue? Or was it all a hoax, a random name thought up by someone who had followed the case in the local news? Regardless, the name Bella was adopted by police, and over the next few months, similar graffiti continued to appear in Birmingham and various parts of the West Midlands, eventually evolving into the most commonly known version, who put Bella in the witch elm. The police were no closer to knowing the answer, and the message would continue to appear sporadically for decades. It is noted that for the first few years at least, all the graffiti appeared to have been written in the same hand, but I think it's important to note that it appears to have always been written in block capitals and that is much easier to mimic someone's uppercase letters than just usual handwriting. Oh, that's interesting. Over the years, there's been a lot of theories about Bella's identity and various scenarios posed as to how she came to be killed. Everything from espionage to witchcraft has been suggested and we're going to get into some of those theories and the reasoning behind them now. I want to start with the suggestion that witchcraft was involved, one, because I think it's an interesting and quite controversial theory, but also because it was first looked at only a couple of years after the case had originally gone cold. In 1945, anthropologist and Egyptologist Margaret Murray from University College London stated that there were several indicators that Bella was the victim of a ritualistic killing relating to the black arts. 
Her main argument revolves around the fact that Bella's right hand was severed and the bones found scattered nearby. According to Murray, this could mean that an occult ceremony called the Hand of Glory was performed, and she said the bones of the executed person would be scattered to the wind. Now, I'm certainly no expert on witchcraft or occult practices, but I did a really quick Google search, and I couldn't see anything about scattering the bones in the articles I found about the Hand of Glory. From what I've read, it involves taking the right hand of a murderer, preferably while they're still swinging from the gallows or during a lunar eclipse, Then it would be pickled or dried and fitted with candles between the fingers. And these had to be dead man's candles, made from the fat of the murderer and using his hair as the wick. Another variation is for the whole hand to be dipped in wax and the fingers themselves lit as candles. That is pretty disgusting. (laughs) It is. It is, especially to pickle it and then leave it out to dry. Uh, Yeah. Oh, no. But the whole point of this was that once the candles or fingers were lit, the hand would keep the occupants of a house in a deep sleep. So it was used to aid burglars, basically. Right. Um, according to law, only milk could extinguish the flame. And if the thumb wouldn't light, it was because somebody in the house was awake and therefore couldn't be charmed. That's really strange. It is. And I know that was a real tangent, but I think it's important because from what I've found, I don't see why Margaret Murray would link that particular ritual to Bella's case because the bones were found. So obviously the hand wasn't taken and turned into some sort of creepy candle. I'm sure there's other rituals that would involve the bones of a hand, but I just don't buy into the hand of glory being the answer. And also, if it is for some sort of witchcraft and you're going to all of that trouble... You would take the bones with you, surely? Oh yeah, it's a lot of effort to remove someone's hand. Yeah, and to put them in a tree. (laughs) But as I said, I'm not an expert, I'm very far from it. But if anyone's listening who knows more about that, then please feel free to contact us and correct me if any of that isn't right. The whole witchcraft angle really gained traction when people began to link the time of the murder with the presence of travellers in the area. Unfortunately, especially in the past, there were a lot of preconceived stereotypes about travellers and one of them was a link to witchcraft. But honestly, I just feel like they're a convenient scapegoat. No one wants to believe that somebody that they potentially know from their local area is capable of murder. Oh, definitely. So another aspect of the witchcraft theory was the location of the body itself. Because in a series of articles written by Donald McCormick in 1968 for the Birmingham Daily Post, it states that Hagleywood had a reputation as the haunt of witches' covens, and there was an ancient tradition that the spirit of a dead witch could be imprisoned in a hollow tree and thus prevented from wreaking any more harm in the world. And then there's another variation as well that Bella was a witch and she was executed for crimes against a coven. Oh, right. Yeah, there's lots of speculation around the witchcraft angle, but I don't really buy into it. (laughs) And it's important, actually, remember Donald McCormick's name for later, because he comes up again. Right, okay. And before we carry on, I do want to make something clear. The name witch elm is derived from an old English word meaning supple or pliant. The wood itself is very bendy and was often used for making medieval Welsh bows. So it's it's not any actually anything to do with witches or magic, although the elm does seem to feature a lot in mythology and folklore, usually associated in some way with the underworld. These days, most mature witch elms are usually found in forests because Dutch elms disease has had quite a devastating effect here in the UK, so they aren't as common as they used to be. Have you ever seen a, an elm that's died of Dutch elms disease? I don't think so. 
Okay, so I have, because I used to work for a local authority and one of the days that I shadowed a specialist, he showed me this tree that needed removing from the area. And it was actually really sad. (laughs) Um, You can absolutely tell that it's dead just by looking at it. And this particular tree was, I think, about 80 years old. So it's quite mature. And yeah, like I say, they look very clearly dead. Police dismissed all these theories and asserted that the hand and bones being found slightly away from the tree was due to animal scavenging. Although the rest of the body was all in the tree. So while I can buy that animals were responsible for the location, the hand still had to have been severed before the body was put in the witch elm. I mean, if it's such a tight space that the whole tree had to be cut down to remove the skeleton, then how did an animal get in there? And if it was able to get in there, why wouldn't any other parts of the body be moved? Why would they scavenge all the way down to a hand and just take that? Yeah, definitely. That is, it is very weird that it would be just the hand. Yeah, it definitely. just doesn't sit right with me. On November 18th, 1953, a letter was received by Wolverhampton Express and Star, who had been running a series of articles written by Wilfred Byford Jones about the Hagleywood murder, and this refuted the claims of the witchcraft. But more interestingly, the author of the letter claims to know the identity of not only Bella, but the killer too. And the letter reads as follows. Finish your articles regarding the witch elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. The affair is closed and involves no witches, black magic or moonlight rites. Much as I hate having to use a gnome de plume, I would think you would appreciate it if you knew me. The only clues I can give you are the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942, and the victim was Dutch, arrived legally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. Anna. So who was this letter writer calling herself Anna? Readers weren't the only people wondering, and the police soon put out an appeal for Anna to make contact. She has stated in her letter that she was from Claverley, which is a town around 15 miles away from Hagley Wood. Could it be she held the answers to Bella's true identity and how she met her end? It wasn't until the 3rd of December that a mysterious Anna would respond to the appeal in a second letter to Byford Jones. Had so much publicity not been given to Anna, I would have contacted you before. I will meet you and officers of the Worcestershire CID at the Dick Whittington. It is beyond the Stupony from Wolverhampton, tomorrow night, Friday, at about 8.30pm. And maybe I can help with their investigations if they are still interested, subject to my conditions, to which I think they will agree. You, of course, will not advertise this meeting in your press. You have had many wild goose chases during the last few days. Maybe this will be the last, or the beginning of many. Who knows? At the Whittington they have a bar on the left of the entrance called the Priest's Hole. Sincerely, Anna. In 2016, the Worcestershire Archive made the West Mercia police files relating to the case available to the public. And while the records gave no clear indication of exactly what happened that night in the Whittington pub, it does contain two very important pieces of information. The first is the true identity of Anna. Her real name was Una Hainsworth, previous surname Mossop. The second is a statement taken from and signed by Una 
in December 1953, which could indicate it was taken at that very meeting on December 4th. The statement reads, I was married to Jack Mossop in 1932, and we went to live at the Bridge House in Wanburn. At that time, he was studying to be a surveyor. The only child of our marriage was born in 1932, and he was christened Julian, and at the present time he is somewhere in America. My husband joined the AST in 1937 as a pilot officer and was stationed at Hamble near Southampton. In 1938 he commenced work for the Armstrong Sidley Works Coventry and subsequently he went on to work at the Standard Aero Works at Coventry in Banalane. It was in 1940 that a man named Von Roll came to our house, number 39 Barrow Road, Kenilworth. I believe this man was Dutch and as far as I know he had no particular job and I have a suspicion that he was engaged on some work that he did not wish to talk about. But in my opinion, it might have been he was a spy, for he had plenty of money, and there were times my husband appeared to have plenty of money after meeting him. It was either in March or April 1941 that my husband came home and was noticeably white and agitated. This was at about 1am in the morning, and he asked me for a drink. I made a comment that I thought he'd had enough, as he had been out all day, but I gave him a drink. He then said that he had been to the Littleton Arms with Von Rolt and the Dutch piece, and that she had got awkward. My husband was driving in the car, which belonged to Van Rolt. She got in beside him. Von Rolt was in the back. Then she fell over towards my husband, and he said to Von Rolt that she had passed out. Van Rolt told him where to drive, and they went to a wood, stuck her in a hollow tree. Van Rolt said she would come to her senses the following morning, and as far as I know, my husband came home. He came home in Van Rolt's car, which was a rover. I lived at Kenilworth until December 1941, and between April and December, my husband appeared very jumpy, and it was noticeable that he had more drink than usual, and appeared to have more money to spend. He was nearly always away from work, and this led to my suspicion that in some way he was obtaining money, and may have been meeting Van Rolt. I should mention that my husband had an old standard car of his own and he used to go off for days on end and I did not know where he was. When I left my husband in December 1941, I went to Henley in Arden and we lived there for 10 years. We lived at Nuthurst House, Shrewley, near Henley in Arden and we finally returned in 1951 to Kenilworth and came to our present address in August 1953. I saw my first husband, Jack Mossop, at Kenilworth on three occasions after I was forced to leave him in December 1941 and tried to get my possessions, including furniture, from the house. And on one of those occasions, it will be the last time I saw him, he told me what I thought at first was a further story to put me off, and it was as follows. That he thought he was losing his mind, as he kept seeing the woman in the tree and she was leering at him. He held his head in his hands and said, It's getting on my nerves, I'm going crazy. It was about June 1942 when I heard that he had been taken to the mental hospital at Stafford, where he died in August 1942. I was not informed of his death at the time and I did not attend the funeral because of this. The first I knew was when my present husband told me that an application had been made at the works claiming money that was due to him and sending a doctor's certificate. I had no knowledge whatever of the Hagleywood murder until an article appeared in the Express and Star newspaper. Neither had I read anything before which could be in any way connected with the incident that I have told you about. I 
have not discussed the matter with anyone, and it was not until I was reading the details and bearing in mind the possible date when the woman met her death that I in any way connected this with my husband's statement to me in March or April 1941. And because of the articles referring to witchcraft, etc., I decided in the first place to write a letter and sign it to Anna. I put sufficient clues in the letter which should have helped to have identified me, and was only because of the subsequent appeal in the newspaper, and because I felt I ought to say what I know of the matter, that I decided to arrange to meet you. I cannot add anything further, and because I am now married again with three small children, I hope that what I have said to you will only be used to aid the course of justice, and it is this which has prompted me to take the action I have. I was not treated too well by my husband, and do not wish in any way to rake up the past, but if what I have told you will help you in this matter then the foregoing statement has been made by me voluntarily, and with that end in view. I, of course, have no proof that what I have told you now is the truth, but bearing in mind my husband's condition and what he said to me at the time, I have done my best to recall it to help with the inquiry. Signed, Una Hainsworth. There's a lot to take in there, so let's sum up exactly what Una is claiming in her letter and subsequent statement. It states that her husband Jack had become acquaintances with a Dutchman named Van Rolt, whom she believed may be connected to a spy ring. One night in April 1941, Jack went out drinking with Van Rolt and the Dutch woman, and this woman had become drunk and passed out. Van Rolt directed Jack to the woods, where they placed the Dutch woman into a hollow tree and left her there to become to her senses. I hate that turn of phrase. Yeah. In respect to what they did to come to her senses. Why leave her in a tree? I'm sorry, but that's just awful and terrifying. And and the fact that, okay, maybe she was drunk. But the fact that you think she deserves to be punished for becoming drunk by being left in a hollow tree overnight. No, no. <laughs> Jack went on to claim that he'd been tormented by visions of the woman's face in the tree. And since they'd become separated, it wasn't until later that Una had learned that Jack had been committed into Stanford Mental Hospital and had died there in August 1942, just aged 29. It was estimated that Bella had died between April and October 1941, and we know Bella had been placed in the tree whilst alive or at least before rigor mortis had set in, so it seems that Una's story is a fairly good fit for the known facts, at least at first glance. It does, but when you really start to look at everything we know, I have to say that I have a few issues with this whole story. The first being why it would take her over a decade to come forward with the information. I know that in her statement she claims that she knew nothing of the Bella case until Byford Jones started writing the articles in 1953, but I'm, I don't buy that. I just can't believe that, given the amount of attention the case had garnered in the media and she wasn't living so far away that the news wouldn't have reached her. Yeah, definitely. We also have no further information on Von Rolt, and if he even existed, there's nothing in the files to indicate the police ever identified him, let alone were able to physically find him. The Worcestershire Constabulary did contact the War Office, but they weren't able to find anything, which I don't find surprising. They had no first name, no date of birth to search for. You know, a last name isn't really enough, and... They don't appear to have asked Una for any sort of physical description, which sure would have been quite helpful. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. That's really bizarre, isn't it? The first thing you ask is, well, what did this person look like? 
The police did make efforts to trace anyone with the last name Von Roltz, and it's noted in the police files that there was no record of anyone by that name in Coventry or Warwickshire. But we don't know if any searches were done in surrounding counties or registries such as the Home Office files or UK Traffic Index. And this point, I think, is the real kicker for me in regards to this theory. Bifer Jones went on to write more articles, and he very much sensationalised the story supposedly told to him by Una during their meeting. So, if you take Una's signed police statement as a reliable telling of these events, then what Byford Jones wrote was exaggerated at best and complete fabrication at worst. And he comes across as so self-important. One line in the article reads, Only one person, her husband, who accompanied her, knew the story she was about to tell. No one else would ever have heard it but for the fact that I reopened the case. Case was never closed, actually. You d- writing about it isn't you reopening the case. No, I don't like that. And what really annoys me, if that already hadn't done enough, <laughs> is that he gets facts wrong. Like, he states that the body was discovered by three youths. Well, we know there were four boys in the woods that day, and if a journalist can't get that right, I'm not sure how much I'm prepared to trust the rest of what they have to say. I'm not going to give too much time to his article, but just to summarise the inconsistencies... He claimed that Jack, whom he refers to throughout as the officer, came to Una, or Anna, one night in April 1943 in distress and told her he'd been out with a Dutchman, a woman, who's supposed to be Bella, and a male trapeze artist. The three others were in the back of a car that Jack was driving and the woman appeared to pass out. The Dutchman and trapeze artist told Jack that she was dead and directed him to keep driving eventually into Hagley Wood, where the three men put the body of the woman into the hollow witch elm. First problem, Bella was found in April 1943 and had been in the tree at least 18 months, so clearly these events didn't take place in 1943. And Uma's statement says 1941. Also, where did this trapeze artist come from? Because there's absolutely no mention of him in Una's statement. It's a bit odd as well, a trapeze artist. Yeah, it's a very random thing to throw in, like a very strange detail, especially when she doesn't mention anyone else, let alone the fact that the other person was a trapeze artist. Bifer Jones write that the officer, who we know is Jack, suffered from hallucinations about the woman and so returned to Hagleywood the next day, confirming the woman was indeed there in the tree. Again, this second visit isn't in the police statement and Una said that he didn't mention these hallucinations until later in the year, certainly not that night and the next day. But then he claims that Jack told Una that he believed the Dutchman was actually a German spy and the trapeze artist had made several inquiries regarding local munitions factories. They were manufacturing aircraft engines and accessories and one of these was later heavily bombed, but he never states which factory. No. So that's very hard to check. He also states that Jack believed Bella, or Lou Bella, had come to Britain illegally after Dunkirk, working as an emissary for the male spy, and that she had been murdered. He also wrote that it was impossible for me to say if the police ever discovered the whereabouts of the trapeze artist, but MI5 was brought into the case. That's the first time that MI5 seemed to have ever been mentioned in relation to it, and when Detective Superintendent Williams was asked to comment a year later, his response was... I can't make any comment about it at the moment. The case is still not closed. I do not think it would be advisable to say anything at the present time. From what I've read, it 
doesn't look like there's any mention of the MI5's involvement in official files, not the ones that have been released publicly in regards to this case. But of course, that isn't a definitive no. It could be that they were involved, but specific files haven't been declassified yet. Right. So some of that seems to just be, let's call it imaginative expansion on the hints given by Una that she had suspicions that von Rolt may have been a spy. But the inconsistency in the dates and specific details of the events just seems as though Bifer Jones has his own agenda for these articles and he was willing to at least bend the truth to fulfil it. It has actually been speculated since that Bifer Jones may have orchestrated the whole scenario, including the letters and meeting with Una, and his articles do seem to be the catalyst for the theories of spy rings and espionage that are associated with this case. So I'm not sure how much effort was put into this line of inquiry, given the questions around the authenticity of Una's statement and connections to Byford Jones. We're going to take some time to discuss some of the spy theories that are most commonly spoken about in this case, but rather than just detailing the theories, we're going to try and debunk some of them using information that isn't spoken about as often, probably because spy theories make great stories, but obviously we want to be giving as much accurate information as possible, and hopefully... This may even shed some light on the case for those who are already familiar with it. So while Byford Jones obviously took some liberties with Una's story, there is in fact a declassified MI5 file that could potentially give some weight to the spy theory. The file concerns Joseph Jacobs, a German spy who was captured after breaking his ankle parachuting into Cambridgeshire and obviously arrested. On him, he had a photograph of a woman he claimed was his girlfriend, identified as German cabaret singer and actress Clara Berla. According to Jacobs, Clara had been recruited as a spy by the Third Reich, and some sources claim that, are you ready? She disappeared after parachuting into the West Midlands in 1941. Case closed then. Do you really think it's going to be that simple? Doubt it with this case. No, this is a really popular theory and it's one that I think a lot of people really enjoy, but sorry to burst everyone's bubble, there's no way that this Clara was Bella. Um, What Jacobs actually admitted to that can be proven was that he and Clara were in a relationship and that she was aware of his involvement with the German intelligence services. He also stated that although there was a plan for Clara to join him in England, he didn't think she would because... Why would they send her when he'd not made contact since arriving? Obviously, he was arrested, so he couldn't. Let's be very clear, Jacobs never made any connection to the Bella in the Witch Elm case. It literally would have been impossible for him to do so, considering he was captured in 1941 and the skeleton wasn't discovered until 1940. 1940s, right. Exactly. But... It appears there was a possibility that she could have been sent over. So let's look at that scenario. For one thing, Bella was a small woman. Remember that she was only five foot tall, whereas Clara was much taller. She was five foot ten, so instantly that casts a doubt. But actually the thing that totally disproves this assertion that they're the same person is that Clara's singing career allows us to piece together a timeline that shows she was still recording up until 1942, Whereas Bella died in 1941, and in 2016 it was confirmed that Clara died in a Berlin hospital in December 1942 of veronal poisoning. Um, Veronal is a barbiturate drug that at the time was mainly used to aid sleep, but 
like many drugs you can develop a tolerance to it and so you have to take more and more for it to have an effect and there are other recorded cases of this resulting in poisoning and death. Interesting side note, Joseph Jacobs was actually the last person to be executed in the Tower of London. Really? Yeah. Thank goodness we don't do that anymore. (laughs) So while we know that this Clara was not our Bella, there is another Clara we should talk about, or more specifically, a Clara Bella. In 1968, when Donald McCormack published his book on the case, if you remember we spoke about him earlier. Yes. And we said about Hagleywood had a reputation for witch covens. That was that was his article that said that. Well, he wrote a book entitled Murder by Witchcraft. And in this, he makes a connection to a spy by the name of Johann Marinus Dronkers. Dronkers was a Dutchman who was recruited by the Germans after the invasion of Holland and was sent to England on a yacht in 1942, along with some legitimate Dutch refugees. Their boat suffered engine trouble during the crossing, but was towed to land by a British ship, and, as was standard procedure, the three men on board, including Dronkers, underwent several interrogations, and although the interrogators had suspicions that Dronkers was a German agent, apparently they had doubts about his capability in that role. One interrogator wrote, The man is a dithering fool, old before his time, a bundle of shaking nerves, maudlin and sentimental. He also goes on to say Dronkers had no special qualifications whatsoever, utterly useless and worthless as an agent. Right. <laughs> so that judgment's obviously very harsh and condescending, but in some aspects, it was accurate. It didn't take long for Dronkers to break under their questioning and the truth of his situation to come out, or what he asserted was the truth. Now, Dronkers had been a postal clerk in Holland. After running into financial difficulties, his brother-in-law suggested he take on work with the German Advar. Dronkers accepted the mission that would send him to England as a spy and he received a payment of 600 guilders prior to leaving Holland. He gave 525 guilders to his wife with a promise from the German Advar that she would receive a monthly allowance of 150 guilders. He insisted he only took the mission because he wasn't earning enough to live decently and he couldn't bear to see his wife suffer. But that once he arrived in England, he had no intention of carrying out any German orders. He stated that, I thought that by accepting to come over here, she would at least for a few months have no further financial worries. Dronkers was found guilty of espionage and sentenced to death following his trial. Before being executed on the 31st of December 1942, Dronkers wrote one last letter to his wife, which was meant to be delivered to her after the war. But that never happened and a translated copy can be found in the National Archives. One part of this letter that really stuck out to me, given that Dronkers had stated money was the motivation behind his actions, was this. God be with you and help you in your afterlife. Have faith in him, he will provide for you. Be sensible and live humbly. That is the only advice I can give you. So that definitely would seem to back up his assertion that money troubles were what led him to it. Yeah. So is the skeleton in the tree in fact the wife of a spy? A woman so focused on money that she was willing to risk her husband's safety and ultimately both of their lives to obtain it? Did Clara Bella Dronkers follow her husband to England before meeting her untimely end, caught in a hollow trunk of a witch helm? If you think this theory seems rather far-fetched, you would be absolutely right. 
This is quite an easy one to debunk because the MI5 files on Dronkers clearly state that his wife's name was, in fact, not Clarabella or Bella, but Elise. That's nowhere near. <laughs> not even close. Born in the Netherlands in January 1893, Elise married Dronkers on the 10th of June 1926. They had no children and Elise would have been 48 years old at the time of Bella's death, so older than the estimated age range given by Dr Webster after the autopsy. Elise died in Amsterdam on the 18th of December 1944. Another blaringly obvious issue is the timeline. Dronkers went on his mission in 1942, so if she had have been his wife, she would have had to have not only been in England but also have been murdered at least a year before Dronkers even left Holland. Canadian author David Tremaine wrote a book in 2017 entitled Rough Justice which gives a comprehensive account of the Dronkers case. He traced the genealogy of both Dronkers and his wife Elise as part of his research and perfectly summed up his opinion on the Bella theory in the following statement. It's been alleged that Bella was a Dutch woman named Clara Bella who was a Nazi spy, and may have been Dronker's wife, who had been murdered in about 1941 and her body stuffed into a witch elm in Hackley Wood. The story, perpetuated by a number of websites, is so ridiculous that no further discussion is warranted. But whoever she was, she was not Dronker's wife. While we're on the subject of McCormick and his book, I want to address another thing that I'm sure people who do know this case are questioning and thinking that I've completely missed. A lot of the time when researching into this particular event, sources will mention that an identity card had also been found at the scene when Bella was first discovered, but the police were able to locate the woman and she was alive and well with no idea of how her identity card got there. Now, there's some instant sort of warning bells that go off in my head when I read this because, remember, we are talking about wartime Britain. You had to have your identity card on you at all times. You had to be able to produce it at any time if requested by the police in order to open and withdraw money from post office accounts, to access NHS services, and of course, you had to present it along with your ration book in order to get any food. So how could someone have not realised that theirs was missing for months? And they weren't like a driver's licence or a passport today. They were made of literal card. So if it had been sitting out in Hagley Wood for 18 months, I doubt it would have been in any condition to be of use to a police investigation. No, I mean, there'd be nothing left, would there, after that? No, probably not. And there's actually no mention in the police files that, well, the ones that have been released, of an identity card being found at the scene. And while some files are missing, it appears that the first mention of the card is, again, in Cormac's book, which, as we've just established, is full of misinformation. While the identity card appears to be just one of the myths so intertwined with the story of Bella in the Witch Elm, like many rumours, it could actually have a grain of truth to it. It's likely this element of the story originated in the discovery of a woman's handbag in Hagley Wood in November 1944. The handbag was found at the base of a small birch tree around 170 yards from where the Witch Elm had stood. It's described as being made of brown leather with nickel hardware and it was clear it had been in the woods for quite a long time. It started to fall apart and it had moss growing on the top. Police searched their records and found a report of a similar bag that had been stolen from a car in Hagleywood Lane on the 16th of December 1939. Although none of the contents was found in the bag or the woods, one of the items that was supposed to be in it was a driver's licence. The owner of the bag was Dr Dorothy Edith Markham, who was contacted and identified the bag as her missing one. 
So police concluded the bag had no connection to the Bella case. But obviously, rumours, yeah. it was found, they were expecting a driver's licence. You can see how that could be twisted into an identity card. I'm not surprised that spy theories were popular among the public, given the fact that the initial discovery of Bella's body happened during the Second World War. If you think of all the propaganda and campaigns that were around at the time, like loose lips, sink ships, and careless talk cost lives, it was very much in the public's consciousness that anyone could be a spy and you had to guard your words very carefully. I have every faith that the police would have investigated any possible links to German spies and intelligence services, but it doesn't seem like there's any real solid connections to be made. Having said that, there will always be people who do believe that Bella was a spy, and one of them is former Birmingham City Councillor Peter Osborne. His interest in this case comes from a personal connection. His father, squadron leader William Douglas Osborne, was none other than one of the special constables who, whilst on leave from serving in the war, was left to guard the tree overnight after the skeleton was discovered. Apparently, whilst walking in Hagley Wood one day, William told Peter that when he was returning home after the war, he travelled with two RAF pilots and they would tell stories to pass the time. William told the pilots of the night he spent in the woods watching over the remains of a woman found inside a hollow tree. As unbelievable and as likely as it sounds, these RAF pilots had supposedly had access to a file they believed was linked to this body. Yeah, it's a bit unbelievable, isn't it? Well, they told William that the file concerned a woman who was involved in espionage and had been executed during the war. They said this woman had an Oxbridge education and her distinctive front teeth were allegedly matched to dental records. So, I mean, it does sound like Bella. But we know that no matches were found in the dental records here in England, so maybe that's because if she was a spy, the dental work was carried out in her home country and so her records would be there, not here. And then, for the more suspicious-minded among us, there is always the possibility that a match was found but covered up by our own intelligence services at the time. Peter says that when he asked his father years later about this story, William shut the conversation down and refused to discuss it. While Peter is careful not to make any accusations as to why his father would no longer speak on the subject, he insists to this day that he believes Bella was a spy. And I think we can all get the inference there that maybe there was some sort of cover-up or at least a warning for William not to speak out again. Definitely. So what are the other theories? Well, there's a few, but a lot of them are just general speculation. One is that Bella was a refugee hiding from the bombings in Hagley Wood and she encountered the wrong person, which absolutely could be the case. Another is that she was murdered by a serviceman who then died in the war, or that her child's father killed her for some unknown reason, because, remember, it is suggested from her pelvic bone that she had at least one child. But there's no specific evidence to back up any of these theories, except maybe one. There are reports that the police were approached in 1944 by a sex worker, reporting that another sex worker known to work the area around Hagley Road had been missing for three years. So that's just before the time of the murder. And guess what this missing woman was known as? Bella? Got it in one. And it's so frustrating that this report is only briefly referenced. It doesn't matter where you look. And there is certainly no mention of any serious investigation into this person's claim. In fact, there's no definitive answer as to whether it was investigated at all. One thing that's always really bothered me about this case is that it appears as if Bella wasn't noted as missing by anyone. 
She was a mother after all and wearing a wedding ring so there had to have been people she was close to and it leaves me feeling really sad that no one cared enough to realise and report her absence. But maybe this friend and fellow sex worker was the one person who did and no one listened. It's sad, isn't it, that she might have just slipped straight under the radar without ever being sort of thought about. Yeah, they could have handed the police the answer and they just didn't look into it enough to actually close the case. It's no secret that the relationship between police and sex workers is usually a strained one. Law enforcement often don't take the same time in care in cases relating to missing, murdered or assaulted sex workers. And this is no excuse, but given their limited resources because of the war and the times that we're talking about, I think it's safe to assume that that probably would have been even truer back in 1944. And it's awful. It just, I'm sorry, it doesn't matter what a person's occupation is. They are a human being and worthy of the police's time and attention. They are someone's child, someone's friend, and in this case, apparently someone's mother. Given that sex workers do sometimes live very transient lifestyles and people are often driven to it by their circumstances rather than a choice, I do believe that Bella's identity most likely is that of a missing sex worker. And don't forget that prostitution is illegal, so I can't imagine there was any reason for this woman to lie in her report. She could have gotten into trouble herself, but clearly she was concerned enough to take that risk, which again helps to convince me that there genuinely was a missing Bella whose disappearance aligns with the known timeline. It's one of the more realistic theories to me and unfortunately part of the reason for that is the relationship that police historically have with people involved in sex work. And I did think maybe that could help explain the graffiti because if other people knew or suspected that these were the remains of a missing sex worker, maybe they were too scared to come forward and reveal their connection to her because of the inferences that could have been made about their acquaintance with Bella. Maybe the graffiti was their attempt to draw attention to the case and hope that the name was enough to point police in the right direction. So those are my thoughts, but what do you think? Well, we've definitely debunked most of the spy theories and the witchcraft doesn't really seem to fit. Well, at least not to me. No, I, I agree. I don't think it does fit. But there is another theory I read, which seems to be a more recent one. And it's that Bella was a member of the traveller community and she'd been a victim of domestic crime. Yeah, I mean, that certainly could be possible. As we said earlier, there were some travellers in the area at the time and they are another group who live transient lifestyles, so I suppose it could fit. It's also noted that certain traveller groups who made camp in the area caused some problems in a few local pubs, so perhaps their behaviour wasn't quite the best. But... I feel like a hollow tree is quite a strange place to hide a body, especially if you're just passing through and you're not familiar with the area. I mean, what are the chances that at the exact time you have a body to dispose of, you just happen upon a hollow tree with just enough space in the trunk to fit a whole person? I feel like that indicates it has to be someone who knows the area very, very well. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like inside knowledge is needed for that. Yeah, I think so. So where does that leave us today? Not much further on than the police were at the time, it seems. Yes, some theories have been disproven, but it doesn't bring us any closer to knowing the truth about Bella, her identity, or how and why she died. But with recent developments in DNA testing and the use of genealogy in crime solving, could the answers be held in the very remains discovered in the tree? It's possible. In 2018, Professor of Craniofacial Recognition at Dundee University, Caroline Wilkinson, 
was able to recreate Bella's features. And if Caroline's name sounds familiar, it's because she was also the person who put together the recreation of Richard III's face just after they found his remains in a car park. So she knows what she's doing. I would hope so. And she was able to do this using photographs of Bella's skull that had been taken when it was first found. Usually she'd use the actual skull to do the reconstruction, but she couldn't in this case because the police have lost Bella's skull. How? How could you lose her skull? I don't know, but according to a spokesperson from the West Midlands Police, searches have been conducted by the Police Museum volunteers and they have confirmed that we hold no exhibits and can find no documentation that may relate to this case at either of the West Midlands Police Museums. Additionally, searches were carried out by a force records team who have confirmed that there is no relevant documentation held within the major investigation team or in external storage. I do know that the area has sort of changed hands as far as which police force's jurisdiction it sits in. So that could be where the uncertainty comes from. But the last known location of the skull was at Birmingham University Laboratory and it's been over 50 years since then. So not only are Bella's remains missing, meaning that if there was any chance of recovering some DNA evidence, it is gone. But as we've mentioned earlier, some of the police files are also missing. What if there was something in the missing documents that could have given us the key to Bella's identity? It's honestly heartbreaking that the evidence is gone, but really, after all the other twists and turns, it almost seems like that's the only possible way to end this case. Who put Bella in the witch elm is a mystery wrapped in a riddle with just a sprinkling of conspiracy for good measure. I do hope that one day something will happen that will unlock the secrets of this case. Maybe the missing evidence will be recovered, or someone will recognise the facial reconstructions 75 years in the making. We mustn't get so lost in the theories that we forget Bella was a real person and she deserves justice. We hope you enjoyed our first foray into true crime and that even if you had heard of this case before, we helped to dispel some of the myths surrounding it. I do want to mention that a lot of the information we used for our research came from the blog josephjacobs.info, which is written by one of his granddaughters, and she has done some absolutely sterling work over the last 30 years investigating not only Joseph's life, but his connection to this case, and all her information comes from verifiable documents and sources such as the National Archives. We really couldn't have made this episode without her blog, so thank you to Giselle. If you enjoyed this episode, then please rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. If you have any suggestions of topics you would like us to cover, email us at outoftimepodcast at outlook.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Out of Time Podcast. Every week we'll be uploading images that are relevant to what we're covering, so make sure to check those out. Thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us again next week for some more history, mystery, mythology and murder here on the Out of Time podcast. (laughs) 